I've, I've enjoyed playing here. This has been over 20 years that I've, I've been coming to Royal Melbourne. This way golf should be played. We love coming down under. Look, it's phenomenal to play. The quality of the golf's been great, but the enthusiasm of the people has been the thing that's just been amazing. Tier of courses that I'm willing to shave my neck for in Kingston Heath. Get me out of bed to shave. Especially somewhere like Australia in the sand belt, and I have so many great memories of being down there. G'day and welcome back to the Australian Golf Passport Podcast. My name is Scott Warren, and I'm joined as always by Matthew Molica. G'day, Matty. Hey Scott, how are you going? Really well, mate. Really well. Looking forward to getting through some some good chat about Royal Melbourne West today. We promised it last week that that's where we'd be starting. Uh, before we do get to Australia's best golf course, big week in news for golf courses in Australia. There's probably some things that that are worthy of a discussion, uh, and then also a couple of cleanups from episode one and two. We've had some lovely feedback from listeners, had some questions, and there's probably a few that are worth tackling at this point. Uh, so to jump off, um, episode two, Maddie, you might recall, we talked a little bit about New South Wales Golf Club's uh, situation with a consulting architect and a redesign and the fact that Mackenzie and Ebert were likely to be the firm that conducted that work. Uh, announcement out of the club this week that that's the case and Mackenzie and Ebert will be returning for another visit uh, with the club in August on site, going to be visiting again before the end of the year. And I think that likely firms up a closure in summer 24-25 for a, a all-in-one complete 18 greens and bunkers rebuild. So I guess the key is, you know, for listeners, if you've got the summer of 2024-2025 circled, you don't have to worry about playing New South Wales Golf Club because you won't be able to. Going back on my, my comments from the last episode, but really great to see the club make a decisive decision and move forward. I think indecision's, you know, the worst outcome in a situation like that. They've found an alternate firm. They've signed them up. We're moving forward. I think that's really great. Yeah, that's exciting. Clear direction and um, some continuity across all 18 holes. Just a matter of organising some games elsewhere while that work's in, in progress. Now, down in, down in Melbourne, in your neck of the woods, Matty, this week, there was, there was an announcement to members at Commonwealth about a $60,000 stock leak in the last 12 months and an investigation that found that there wasn't any kind of substantial theft or raid or anything. It was, it was largely believed to be demo equipment going out for testing and never coming back. Uh, that's, that's a lot of demo equipment just disappearing. That's, you know, at 750 a driver, that's 82 drivers in a year. It's wild to think that, that that can go. And people are probably thinking, what's this got to do with golf courses? The thing that I, immediately thought about when I saw that announcement was the previous week, the club had announced with great fanfare they'd started a rebuild of half their golf course. There was a picture up on Instagram touting, touting the, the starting day of the work. And I couldn't help but notice, Maddie, that in the picture, along with what seemed to be the entire board and executive in high viz was Brian Slonick from Renaissance Golf, uh, was Graham Grant standing there as well, in the shot and also Paul Mogford from Crafter and Mogford. And I thought, if you've got three golf architects, Matt, do you have one? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure how that's going to be split or how that relationship will go. Um, Whether vegetation is within someone's remit and construction is within someone else's. But um, you would think that Renaissance and Salonic would feel very comfortable handling that project by themselves, wouldn't you? I mean, I would have thought just that 
one single point of view is is a really great is a really great thing to have. You don't go and see three doctors at the same time. You know, if you've got troubles, you don't go and consult three lawyers all at once in the same room. I just I, maybe I'm maybe I've I've been criticised of being too hard on Commonwealth in the past, and maybe that's what I'm doing here. But I just looked at that and I thought they've got three people who could all individually probably do a very good job. Brian Slornick particularly has a track record on the sand belt of doing some really good work. Just pick one and let them run with it. Uh, I don't I don't have good Scooby senses about how that's going to finish up. Yeah, I think a lot of people looking in from the outside would would have some concern and maybe we're maybe we're reading it incorrectly maybe those inside the club feel comfortable with how things are structured but commonwealth's a gem it's a distinctly different course to many others on the sandbelt famously one of the featured courses in the 31 flavors within doke's original confidential guide some brilliant architecture there and I, i suppose we all just hope that it can be returned to its former luster and that it can be the best that it can and yeah would have thought that one architecture firm would have been the best way to deliver that but let's see yeah and i think you know picture does tell a thousand words in the same week that commonwealth had three golf architects and its entire board in the photo yarra yarra also announced the next stage of its work and its announcement picture was just brian slornick and one piece of earth moving equipment and it's it's just symbolism but i think that that says a little bit about about both clubs but i do hope that Commonwealth can get to where they would need to be because ultimately 15, 20 years ago, they were probably they were probably in a similar class to Kingston Heath and the two clubs have gone in very different directions since then. It would be so great to see Commonwealth get back to to the, the potential that it has because, God, there's some good stuff there. Yeah, there's some brilliant holes out there um, and I, I think all, all Melbourne golfers really want to see it back to its former glory for sure. Now, finally, Matty, in News of the Week, I just, it's one of these things that makes you just shake your head because it's not what golf needs. Highly controversial former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, now that he doesn't have to worry about running the country, has announced that he's taken up golf. He's got the bug. And I just thought it's one of these things that non-golfers look at and they just think, yeah, that's that's what I would have expected. doesn't do us any favours. Standing next to a golf cart pointing into the distance, I... With everything else that's going on with the game at the moment, I share your sentiment. That's the that's the last thing we need at the moment in Australia. But I wanted to, Matty, so he's a Sydney sider. I was trying to think which club he'll join. You know, he lives in the southern side of Sydney, so he's probably unlikely to join uh, former Prime Minister John Howard up at Avondale. You know, have you got any ideas? What, what do you think might be a good fit for Scotty Morrison? My first thought was that he would just put in an application at Kapalua, <laughs> given... Uh, <laughs> Given his love of all things Hawaii, as it's most very Australians likely. will recall, he um, definitely needs somewhere to play during a bushfire summer. That's uh, that's a good that's a good thought, Matty. At the, at the at the risk of tarnishing the name of our former prime minister, I'm hoping that he his his bunker etiquette is good, and that his raking technique is sound. He he can't hold a hose. He's told us that, but hopefully he can hold a rake. And a flag. Well, you'd be nervous. You'd be nervous, Matty, if you were the captain of the club that he ends up joining, because he might just appoint himself club captain. And CEO and Greenskeeper and yeah. chair of match. And, and the uh, overseas listeners have pretty much got no idea what we're talking about right now, which, yeah. you know, that's what Google's for. You could do some homework, but um, probably move on from Scotty Morrison at this point to a couple of cleanups from episode one and episode two. Uh, Andy Gray in Sydney uh, had, had actually thought some really good 
feedback. He listened to the first episode and said that he, uh, when he first went to the Sandbelt, he's a Sydney sider, went to the Sandbelt, played Metro first, then Kingston Heath, and then finally played Royal Melbourne West Course. And he was saying that he thought it was actually a huge part of the enjoyment of his whole visit that he kind of moved up gradually from course to course. If he'd seen Royal Melbourne West first, he might have walked around and not been as enthused at the other two, but he sort of got got the lay of the land at Metro and saw some really great sandbelt features and really good turf. And then Kingston Heath steps it up a bit from there. And then obviously Royal Melbourne, as we're about to tackle, is, you know, can't be surpassed. Thought that was really good feedback. Yeah, I remember the No Laying Up guys talking about the sequence in which they saw the courses when they came out years ago. Uh, they recognised little strengths and qualities and characteristics of, of particular courses and then sort of saw all of them in the one place at Royal Melbourne and were really happy that they sequenced things as they had. They're, yeah, definitely the order in which you play, that, that's a great point from Andy, makes a lot of sense. Sorry, sometimes that's out of your control. You might you might not be able to access a particular course on a particular day, but um, if you've got a long lead time and a reasonable duration to your visit, it's, it's something worth thinking about. And so Tim Shermer got in touch and made a very good point, and I can't believe we managed to talk for an hour and a half across two podcasts about Australian golf without talking about stocks. It must be the absolute bugbear of overseas visitors, particularly Americans who come here, and they might have you know black socks or, or blue socks or anklet socks, and it is, it is remarkable that pro shop staff will just look you in the eye and say, oh, look, sorry, not with those socks on, you don't. You don't have to buy a $20 pair of socks from the rack behind you. The good news is that we're, we're modernising slowly. Um, I know in New South Wales now you can wear black socks only if you're wearing black shoes as well. But it's a step okay. forward. Obviously, you and, you and Porter had a, had a bad experience at a club in Sydney recently and ended up with a ban for wearing black socks that he documented on Twitter. That's the kind of eccentricities of, of golf clubs. Yeah, those... Those links in some of the club websites that talk about attire and what's acceptable and what's not. Um, overseas visitors might not think to visit those sites and just assume that what goes at home is suitable in another country as well. We are a bit different. Anklets don't work. The black ones invariably don't work. Big logos don't work. I think a suitcase full of white crew socks is a smart move. No one's gonna, no one's gonna balk at a white crew sock. And it seems like they're coming back into fashion. So there you go. So you don't have to. You don't have to be wearing a, a Harlequin yellow knee sock necessarily to get away with things. Uh, Tim Shermer also commented on sand buckets at clubs. Yes. Australians tend to have a habit of carrying a sand bucket with them and filling their divots as they go around the course. Uh, not always the case at uh, the clubs and courses of visitors, but definitely the dumb thing here. Uh, Tim was curious about caddies as well at clubs, and that is really not a strong part of Australian golf culture, is it? No, you've got to be asking in advance at most clubs, and you should be warned as well, I think, that what that's likely to get you is a bag carrier. It's not going to get you a caddy in the American private club sense of someone who knows the holes and knows the shots and reads the putts. Uh, there's actually a famous, famous story of... A bloke I heard who went to Barnboogle and decided he would get a caddy and he got to the fifth hole on Lost Farm, which famously is a big sharp dog leg over this gigantic pyramid-like dune, and he, and he quizzed the caddy on the line and the caddy told him the line and so he smokes a drive exactly on the line. They get up there and the ball's 
absolutely nowhere to be found. It's it's missing right on the in the in the native. And he says to the caddy, "You're absolutely sure of that line?" And the caddy says to him, "To be perfectly honest with you, I've never caddied for someone who's played that tee before, so I was guessing." That's not what you want from a caddy. No. So probably just, you know, if you bring yourself a lightweight carry bag and you just shoulder your own bag with a yardage book in your back pocket, that might be that might be the best the best way to get around. And maybe a friendly member who's hosting you that might point in the right direction instead of the wrong direction. I think there's one or two clubs who um, their practice with unaccompanied overseas guests is to is to offer a caddy or to inform them that a caddy is available. And I think there's one or two clubs. Um, I think a guest from years ago was telling me that he he was given a caddy. I can't remember where he was playing, and that was certainly my memory. That chap's recollections. It was more than a bag carrier. It was um, it was someone who knew their course quite well. No, that's good I mean, to hear. The other thing that comes to mind is Lucas Michelle ca- caddying around Royal Melbourne for an overseas visitor. So that, that would be an absolute treat. That's the other end of the spectrum, really, isn't it? So, indeed. Yeah. And so weekends away as well. Had a couple of people. So Mitchell Van Homery and Nick Holland both got in touch, asking, you know, for Aussie listeners who may not be organising a smash out the top ten courses in the country type trip, but you know, a buddy's trip, a couple's trip, a weekend away. They're keen for us to do a little bit of chat, and I think it probably necessitates its own episode. But, you know, weekends away for golf in Australia, there's probably some locations, I think, that, you know, you might not be pointing an overseas visitor, but places like the Murray, uh, the Gold Coast, I think, has some upside depending on what the the preferences are and the priorities of your travelling group. Even the south coast of New South Wales, and, you know, you knock out Molly Mork and Aruma and maybe um, Chira Beach or something like that, there's... There's some spots that if you're Australian and you're looking to to get away somewhere relaxing, there's probably some places we'll be chatting about in that episode, Maddie, that otherwise may not get a chat. So thanks to Mitchell and to Nick for for raising that idea. That's a really good one. Yeah, that's that's a good point, and and definitely worthy of a, of an episode down the road. Now, lastly, Maddie, you mentioned that you were going to do some homework for us last episode about overseas visitors playing in Ivo Witten events on the Sandbelt to try to access. You know, really good clubs on a Saturday for a competitive rate to play that kind of tournament style golf. What did you find there? Uh, the Ivos are held at many clubs, not all clubs on the Sandbelt, but there's there's a number of clubs around metropolitan Melbourne that host them. Some days, weekends, um, some of those events are midweek events. And there's a calendar of events for amateur tournaments and competitions, both on the Golf Australia website and the Golf Victoria website that visitors can refer to see if any of those tournaments coincide with a planned visit awesome i think that's a really good shout and then likewise uh if you look on the new south wales golf website uh for the varden schedule uh those are the those are the comparable events up in in new south wales and in sydney and i know the australian the lakes new south wales avondale all the places that you might like to think that you play bonnie doon all have those events so yeah Moving on, Maddie, to the uh, the star of the show today, the West Course at Royal Melbourne. It's obviously got the East Course sitting as its sable mate. We're going to tackle the East Course in a different episode because West really does require a lot of its own chat. And this is not going to be time to do both in one. Uh, so keen to have a chat with you about Royal Melbourne West Course. Uh, you, you're very fortunate to get to play that probably more often than a lot of people. And so I'm sort of in your hands for this episode. And I guess I'll be... I'll be tossing you some questions and letting you run with a lot of the the answers and the descriptions, given that you know the course so well. 
but I'm curious if you can recall the first time you played the West Coast at Royal Melbourne. I can, uh, and I often it's a day I often think back to. Royal Melbourne lets its courses out to local charities on one or two occasions per year, and uh, I was able to play the West Course on a beautiful sunny afternoon in that October-November time window that you alluded to in the previous episode, Scott. Uh, the charity at that time was the Black Rock Sports Auxiliary. And now I think it's a Rotary Club of Bo Morris that runs a charity event. And I'll, I'll put a link to that event for those who want to participate in that event. I think they're staging it in May next year. There's also a, a Paul Rack Memorial event that's held in the middle of the year for visiting teams. I'll put a link in for that event as well if anyone wants to come and play Royal Melbourne on one of those days. But certainly the October day... Uh, uh, members would go off to the races during the spring carnival and uh, local golfers who had no other way of accessing Royal Melbourne would come along and pay their money to the charity and play the courses on that Caulfield Cup Saturday. I can remember the guys I played with, we would get there very early in a very excited frame of mind and there were barbecues and raffles and uh, a better ball par competition for all of the visitors. And I was playing with Steve McMurray, who uh, one or two of our listeners will know, the vast majority of you won't, but he's a, he's a colleague and a, a longstanding friend of mine, big, strong guy, not prone to emotional outbursts. But I can remember the sun was setting and we had had a great day. We had pushed the button to open the gate to walk from the 16th green back to the 17th tee to finish our round. And Steve was overcome with emotion and looked at me and said, you know, I'm feeling a little misty over here. And that depth of emotion really summed up what we were all feeling as we were coming to the conclusion of this, this first lap around this cathedral-like venue. Yeah, absolutely. And having been, having been lucky enough that one time I played the West Course, we basically put it out on 18 as the last light disappeared playing that 16 to 18 stretch and we'll cover that a bit further in depth later in the episode but that three hole stretch in the golden hour is is about as special as as it gets so um yeah why maddie then is this course a must play well as you said at the outset it's it's the best course in australia it's the best course in the southern hemisphere it's in the world top 10 royal melbourne west is a, a course built on a grand canvas on a big scale uh, there's big hazards there's wide fairways, there's large undulating greens, there's a wealth of great shots to hit, challenging shots, fun shots to hit. There's great variety in the holes that are offered to you as you make your way through the round. It's spread over great topography. It probably embodies all of McKenzie's design principles as well as any other course that he ever worked on. Yeah, I think one of the things that that stuck in my mind the the first time I played it, and every time I go back, I'm impressed by it again. Is the greens are, you know, they're they're very firm, um, they're very fast, but they're such interesting greens to try and work a ball towards the hole on, or when you're putting on them. You know, a lot of modern greens that get quite wild. People will have a three putt, and they'll say these they're too wild. I think every time you three putt at Royal Melbourne, and it's pretty often that you do, you just know that it was you. You realise that you put your golf ball somewhere that you shouldn't have, or you realise that you got a little bit, you know, you got a little bit excited with the first putt and tried to hole it and you smashed it 10 feet past. I think they're the kinds of greens that 
to the extent that we want to celebrate fairness as a as a positive trait of golf, but they're eminently fair, but they're just so interesting and tricky that I can't imagine that you ever really feel that you've got their measure. No, you can feel comfortable on them. I'm sure there's long-time members who feel really comfortable on them and get very adept at positioning approaches in safe spots and below the hole. For those who play it less frequently, you either don't appreciate the sting in the tail with some putts, or you get a little greedy and then you leave yourself 10 feet coming back, as you said, or you're just genuinely surprised at the speed and slope of some of them. Um, They're really firm surfaces, and that accentuates the strategic qualities of the hole. And I think there's that old saying, you know, that about greens on a golf course are like a face on a portrait. And I think that's that's true in my experience. And honestly, I might not have played another set of greens as good as, as the West at Royal Melbourne, or maybe another course in the top 20 that has such a really terrific variety of holes from, you know, short par threes and short par fours, reachable par fives, to some really stout two-shotters like 17, the trickiness of 16, like a genuinely interesting 200-metre par three that's not a slog that really does ask you to think about where you want to be playing your second shot from. That variety is, I think, a really a really big part of RM West being number seven in the world, according to Golf Mag, and, and look, potentially potentially number one, two, or three in the world. I think when you get to that that high level, it's pretty hard to say they belong in a set order. I think that the, the message is, and it probably is worth delivering before we get to the next question, is that the golf course is this good. It is... It is on the Pine Valley, Shinnecock, National Golf Links, County Down level. I think it's easy in golf sometimes that places that aren't accessible get celebrated or, or you know, mythicised a bit more than their qualities probably demand. And the places that are accessible, they kind of sit a little bit lower in the mystique because you can go and play there. And I really think the message for anyone is if you haven't played Royal Melbourne West and you get the opportunity to, I just don't see... A reason not to do it. I think you'll you'll absolutely walk off and think that was one of the most special golf experiences I've ever had. Totally agreed. But totally it does agreed. lead me to to ask you, Maddie, why would you consider skipping the course? And these are two questions I'll just flag. I think we're going to ask for every for every course that we talk about because I think it kind of brings out you know the pros and the cons. Is why is it a must play? And and then so yeah, for Royal Melbourne West, why would you consider skipping it? Uh, if you were an overseas visitor on a tight timeline, the club has a link that I'll put into the show notes, allowing you to contact them and organise a tea time. Uh, they occur from memory on Mondays and Tuesdays and Fridays. And if you're out here for a short time and your schedule didn't allow, that would be a circumstance in which I could see someone skipping the course. Short of that, I, th- I think it should be the linchpin of any serious golf trip to Australia, and I can't imagine that someone would be happy boarding the flight home thinking that they'd not seen it. Yeah. One of the things that I think is worth stressing too with the West at Royal Melbourne is that, yes, it will possibly be or probably be your most expensive tea time if you are coming from overseas, but it's 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 not to think that that's that's for 18 holes of golf and that's what you're getting for your money. Royal Melbourne, in my opinion, does a better job than maybe anywhere that I've visited of the experience of being there. And that's, you know, that means a lot of different things to a lot of people. And I think for me with Royal Melbourne, it's about they've got the machinery dotted around 
the clubhouse area that was used to build the course and it's it's plows and scrapes that were pulled by horses and it's fascinating to see those things there as this touchstone back to the 1920s when it was built it's the incredible exhibits in the clubhouse they've got a really great array of historical pieces that sort of help you explain how the courses came to be there um some of royal melbourne's great tournament history uh, i know that royal melbourne has an incredible library which you know i said to you the other day oh we, we shouldn't mention the library because i bet that regular punters can't go in there and and you told me that no absolutely that is available yeah i've, I've been up there a number of times over the years and there's an enormous collection of club histories uh, instructional books biographies historical books as well behind glass and, and you can you can just stroll in and have a look which if you're unfortunate enough to be there on a day where the siren sounds and you come in or if you get there four hours before your tea time and you're waiting for your host to arrive um the library's as good a place as any yeah i think too on a on a part of australia that maybe as we'll get to other courses we're going to talk about some regrettable clubhouse redevelopments the bar at royal melbourne the little dining room downstairs is a really, really nice, sunny place to have a meal. Overlooks the 18th hole of the East Course. And then you step outside onto the putting green and it's actually this really great little area where you've got a really nice big putting green with the 18th West to your right, 18th East to your left. You've got the first tee on West out in front of you, people coming and going. And it's just a great place to stand there, you know, get your nervousness out with a few putts, learn how quick the greens are and just people watch. I think too, it's worth, it's worth mentioning because I had a, I, genuinely, I had a panic attack the first time I came to Royal Melbourne. I was so excited and nervous. I was still quite young. So I still kind of thought I was probably going to do something stupid or you know, accidentally break a rule that I didn't know existed. And I genuinely coming in the, in the driveway was like probably hitting 180 beats a minute. And then you discover that great clubs in australia there isn't a huge amount of pretense and there isn't a lot of silly rules and requirements and things that people are going to chip you on and once you're in once you're in the gate and you pay your green fee and you've got your honorary member tag on your bag everyone's just pretty much treated pretty equally whether you're a member of 20 years standing or a you know visitor coming to play it for one time in your life i think that that element of the experience surprises some but everyone there loves golf and they're looking forward to a good day. And it's a, it's a very comfortable experience and one that's certainly uh, not high on pretense, as you said. And Matt, people have probably heard about the composite course at Royal Melbourne. Now, that's not a course that people can arrange to play, obviously. There's the West and the East and the composite, something that's pulled together just for tournaments. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious for you to tell us a little bit about what the composite is and in your view, I guess, how much better it is than, than the West? Because I think if West is the seventh best course in the world and at least five of the six composite holes that replace holes on the West are better than the hole they replace, it sounds like that's potentially the best golf course in the world, just hiding in plain sight. Yeah, I, I think Nick Faldo's on record as saying this might be the best golf course in the world. I think Dokes commented along the same lines. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the history, there's there's... There's two courses at Royal Melbourne, the West, which was designed by Mackenzie in 1926 and opened a little while later once construction was completed. And then there's the East course that was designed by Alec Russell and it opened for play in 1932. 
And those two courses are spread out over four parcels of land that the, that the club owns. At various times in the last 70 years, the club has conducted tournaments over what they refer to as the composite course. And in an attempt to stop galleries and events sprawling over suburban roads that or divide the, the club's property into those multiple paddocks, composite courses contained within the main fence line, the largest land holding of the, of the four parcels. That composite course comprises 12 west holes and six east holes. Most people listening to this will have seen the composite course in play over various President's Cups, perhaps an Australian Women's Open in times past. The composite course was first devised in 1959 for an event that was called the Canada Cup at that time, and it subsequently became the World Cup the pairs event that we've seen Jason Day and Adam Scott win in the last 10 years. Uh, it seems to have been the brainchild of the general manager of the club at that time, Bill Richardson. He discussed it in a meeting with Peter Thompson, a couple of council members from the club at that time, and the club's greenskeeper, Claude Crockford. And they sort of came to the conclusion that it would be called a composite course, and they um, were told essentially by Bill which holes would be within that 18-hole layout. Four East is a long uphill par three down in one corner of the property. It was in the original sequence. Uh, there's a, a smaller, beautiful-looking par three 16th on the East course that sometimes subs in for it instead, largely because of gallery movements with big events. Um, Which might be the best par three in the world. Well, I remember I went to watch the 98 President's Cup and was standing close by that fourth east green, 16 east tee on a practice day. And Lee Jansen walked past me with Ben Crenshaw and they were talking amongst themselves and Lee Jansen's eyes were popping out of his head as he realised he was going to walk past 16 east. And he was saying to Ben, what on earth are we doing and why are we not playing this hole? And they just moseyed along to the 17th tee and finished their round. But, yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's an embarrassing wealth of par threes on across those two courses. And, and yeah, the, the 16 East hole comes in to some of those sequences. They also change the order sometimes so that rather than uh, matches finishing as they often would on a 16th hole, three and two, the sequence of holes in the composite is changed for the President's Cup. So matches usually finish in reasonable proximity to the clubhouse. There are opportunities, I think, for members to play the composite a few times a year. I think they have events over the composite on a handful of occasions each year. And, and from memory, they play the original sequence where they dart on one west and then go to a couple of east holes and you end up coming up uh, 17 and 18 east. For those who've been there, that'll, that'll make sense. And so, Matty, you are uh, getting back to the west course you talked earlier about quite a lot of qualities across the golf course that you think make it a must-play and make it one of the best golf courses in the world. Is there a hole for you, a singular hole, that, or maybe one or two holes that sum up Royal Melbourne West? I was thinking long and hard about this. I was going to change the answer from when we first spoke about it. Um, I'm going to stick with my original answer. I think that either 6 or 17 West are emblematic of the course, they are dogleg par fours. The sixth is downhill and to the right. Uh, the 17th is to the left. They're both up near 400 yards or a little bit beyond 400 yards, I should say. They have plenty of room 
to play. There are hazards on challenging lines that you need to engage with if you are chasing a good score on the whole and if you want to set up a desirable angle of approach and also a shorter approach. If you want to be conservative off the tee, you can deny the challenge or, sorry, you can um, resist the challenge of those hazards and play a very conservative tee shot that renders birdie almost impossible and brings bogey into the question. They travel over interesting topography. They have curvy greens with really artful greenside hazards. I think they sum up everything that is, is best about this course. Yeah, I think I'd echo what you say about those greens and their hazards. The last time I played at Royal Melbourne, I think I took about 30 photos and I think 23 of them were of the 17th green and the surrounds. It is it is that kind of great marriage of those holes are so functional in a strategic sense in terms of playing, you know, do you take the challenge with your tee shot or your, or your approach shot? You know, do you miss in the right spot and try and chip and putt rather than a difficult two putt? But on top of it all, they're both incredibly beautiful holes. And I think that's, you know, we play golf with our eyes as much as anything else. And you've just described two holes that I think incredible to play, but also just beautiful to, you know, if you sat down with a blanket and a few sandwiches, it would be beautiful just to sit there and, and ogle. Yeah, there's a, there's a naturalness, particularly to that greenside bunkering on the 17th of the West, where there's a really formal bunker, bunker edge right up against the putting surface. And that that sandy expanse sort of bleeds easily into the vegetation beyond without any formal definition. And that I always marvel at that when I, when I see it, that that 17th green complex is bunkered on one side. There's ample room out to the left. If you miss the target, you can, or, or if you want to play conservatively, but it comes with a, a commensurately delicate little pitch to most pins, uh, a friend of mine, Jonathan Becker, refers to 17 West as the finest inland green side in the world. And I I often think about that phrase when I play that hole and I, he, he, he might be right. He's seen a lot in his time and he, that's, that's a great description of 17 West's green. Now, I'm interested now, Matty, to get your take on a bit of an old, an old arguing point for anyone who's played a lot of golf at, at Royal Melbourne on the Sandbelt is... Now, everyone in the world goes crazy for the fifth hole on the west course. It's that long par three with the green sort of benched into a hill and beautiful bunkering around it. But two holes later, as far as I'm concerned, you play a better hole. You play a little uphill, short iron, par three. That maybe doesn't take as good a photo, but in your view, is seven west a better, a better hole than five west? I think it might be. It calls for a greater variety of tee shots in my experience. There's, there's thousands of others who've played both holes way more frequently than me, but um, I feel on the tee of five that I, I just try and hit the green, whereas seven, I, I'm tempted to do something a little more. I'm going to shape something or hit it high and let it stop close to the hole or uh, get a little greedy or get a little more artistic and... Um, I'm sure better players than me have that sense standing on that team. Seven might allow them to showcase their skills better than five does. Yeah, these things are all relative. Obviously, we're talking about a world top 10 course. You know, the the least good par three on Royal Melbourne West would comfortably be the best par three on most courses. So I just think it is interesting, though, that it's kind of the argument that never has an answer because one, one you're hitting a five iron or a six iron across you know, a valley, 
you know, to a really steep green, you're trying just to hit a really crisp mid to long iron and hold the green. Then on the next one, you've got maybe something between a seven and a nine iron, you know, the kind of club where even a mortal can imagine that they can, they can do something clever. So it's two completely different types of propositions. But, you know, when you move on to the back nine, you've got the 13th is, is quite a simple little short iron hole. And then 16s are something probably between a four iron and a driver, depending on the wind and the golfer. So it is, as we talked about before, that variety of, of the par threes is, is quite striking. It really is uh, a comment on 13. Occasionally, it, it feels like it occupies a soccer pitch, a, a pretty flat, modestly sized, nondescript parcel of land. And there's a wonderful hole that sits on that, on that stretch. Um, I think that's one of the things that the sandbelt does really well generally. You know, you're just describing that, the setting of that hole being nothing special. I mean, you could have just been describing 13 East at Royal Melbourne. You could have been describing 10 at Kingston Heath. Uh, you could have been describing the, I think it's the 13th or 14th at Yarra Yarra, which are maybe the 15th also at Commonwealth. These really terrific little par threes great greens, tricky bunkering. But, you know, if you had two acres anywhere, you could build those holes. Definitely. Yeah, just just great construction and, and intelligent design, um, ingenious little green complexes. Yeah, the Sandbelt does do that very well. Um, getting back to your, your comments regarding five and seven, they both have interesting histories. Five West is the only hole that Mackenzie saw completed on his visit. So he was working with Alec Russell, as we commented in a previous episode, and Mick Morecambe, the superintendent at Royal Melbourne at that time. And they had completed five. So Mackenzie was able to see that finished and give it a tick and say, continue in this vein. Seven is actually a hole designed by Ivo Witten. The West Course predates the East by several years, and the seventh hole on the West Course in its early life was in a different spot. And it was a short uphill par three with a wildly tiered green from what I can gather. Something that looks like Pasatiempo's 16th, but much smaller, but really marked tiers and significant internal movement within those. Surrounded by sand. And the members referred to it as Mount Misery. <laughs> uh, I can imagine a lot of triples and worse were scored there. The point where the seventh West Green sits these days was reserved for a clubhouse. And when the East Course was laid out and a clubhouse was constructed at the site where the current one sits, that seventh green site at the top of the rise was empty. And so the club commissioned Ivo Witten to build a replacement for Mount Misery. And that's the hole that we have today. And that, that hole was opened in, uh, I think, 1937 from memory. It's funny that that example, Maddie. it was, um, I, I managed to get out yesterday for my first game of golf in three months. And I was playing at New South Wales with someone who's never played there before and was talking about the par threes. And I was, I was saying, and it's similar to that seventh West, that none of the par threes at New South Wales were built by Mackenzie. There wasn't even a great, there wasn't even a hole built by Mackenzie on that land. And yet so many people come to New South Wales and they walk off, they go such a classic set of Mackenzie par threes. 
and you just kind of smirk to yourself. And I think there's probably been, you know, a lot of people walk off seven West at Royal Melbourne waxing lyrical about, oh, you know, the deception and the camouflage of, of the good doctor and all those things people say. And they're actually describing, you know, the, the design achievements of Ivo Witten. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what else Ivo Witten ever designed or helped construct in his time, but he certainly, he certainly gave the club a hole that seamlessly blends with everything else on that property. Uh, it, it would, I would defy anyone to pick that as a non-McKenzie hole. I don't, yeah. I don't think anyone ever would. And really compliments so. the other 17 too. You know, it yeah. does something different um, with the same themes and the same character. And Mackenzie was obviously, he was quite a um, strongly opinionated person. He had uh, he had famous falling outs because he believed what he believed and he thought what he thought and he didn't really care what maybe some other people thought. And I, I love the pig-headedness of what he did on the 15th West at Royal Melbourne. Uh, so there was a rudimentary course on the land when he turned up to design his his 18 holes and he he famously announced that there were these steeplechase type mounds on the 15th well where what became the 15th west that he left there uh, to show future generations how bad primitive golf architecture was you know it's almost like he he deliberately wanted that there because it would it would contrast with this other 150 acres of of beauty that he'd created but i've got to say now that technology's happened and 15 west is now reachable into for a lot of players albeit probably with a hybrid or a, a long club these bloody mounds that kind of sit five feet high covered in long rough and maybe it's just because i have a tendency to thin hybrids and long irons but it does make something that would otherwise just be you know hit a driver pop a club up near the green make a birdie or an easy par you know i I sweat over that shot because I'm worried that if I just look up a little bit and I catch it thin, I'm going to knock it into the steeplechase mounds. Am I just, am I glorifying it based on my own game? Or do you think those features have actually become a hundred years after Mackenzie visited, you know, quite a good feature again? I think they are a good feature. I, I wouldn't want to see them repeated too often, but I, it's, it's surprising how often they see some play as foursomes make their way through that hole uh, driving it into a fairway bunker and then wondering where you're going to put your second how close to those mounds do i go can i get over them will i not short hitting members will find that they are invariably in the landing zone for a second shot that they want to hit so they have to make a decision about laying up or hitting something longer than they might feel comfortable with they do work well and they are a remnant of that Victorian era of golf course design, but they're quirky and a talking point. And I suppose I'm a fan of it. Yeah. It's um, the fact that it's, it's a one-off as well. You know, you mentioned you wouldn't want, you wouldn't want multiples on the same course or even maybe in the same region, but I think it's a really great little different use of, of, of difficult architecture. You've had all this, incredible bunkering and, you know, angled hazards and whatnot, really traditional, um, great strategic stuff for, for 14 holes to that point. And then there's just, there's just these, these grassy eyebrows that you have to pop over, but having finished 15, we touched on this briefly before, I think 16 to 18 is, you know, you talk about finishing around on a high, 
potentially three of the best, maybe five or six holes on the course, in my opinion, three very different holes, you know, a, a 200 meter path, par three, you cross the road, you've detailed earlier in the, in this, in this episode, you know, the merits of 17, um, quite a traditional strategic hole. And then you get to 18 and it, it dog legs pretty sharply over a kind of off cambered blind rise of a, of a dune. And then this incredible, really heavily bunkered approach. Uh, it's, it's three very different holes, three very challenging holes. You know, three pars is an incredible achievement on, you know, for anyone who carries a handicap with them around the golf course. I just think you walk off a golf course and what you've most recently experienced is going to tinge your immediate feelings. I just think it's impossible to play those three holes and not think, you know, that's, that's pretty bloody special. Yeah, it's, it's a great finish. It calls for some really, really good decision-making and really good shot-making. Traverses some great terrain and some bold, accurate tee shots really reward you with great angles and great looks on approach. Shorter approaches in some instances as well, depending on how brave you've been. You have to step up and hit a shot on 16 tee. It's, 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 as you said, it's a 220-yard par three and the green is not enormous. There's a lot of sand around it. Southerly wind is not a friend there either. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a manageable finish, but there's three really high-quality holes and really enjoyable holes that round out the day's play on this course. And uh, there's, there's definitely a wealth of highlights sprinkled throughout the round. We've, we've got this far and we haven't mentioned the third hole, which is one of my favourites. <laughs> Uh, people always comment on the 10th hole, which is a short par four with an enormous hazard on the inside. Uh, but yeah, that, that finish of 16, 17, 18 is, is really something that's world-class. Mm. You mentioned three, and I think it's one of the holes that is a real uh, poster child for something that I think is perverse about what technology has done to Royal Melbourne is that the ability for handicap amateurs to drive the ball 20, 30, maybe 40 metres further, I think has actually made a lot of the holes at Royal Melbourne that were always great for the best players has made them just as great for us lesser players. And I think about instances like the short par five second that now a lot more players can try to drive it over the fairway bunker and get a long kind of fairway wood or hybrid, try and sling one in there onto the green in two the third you mentioned is is maybe the best driving pitch hole in the world without being hyperbolic. I think it's that good. And one of the great features of it is for a long driving player to have to decide, do you drive it down by the green and have a little pitch to a green running away from you steeply or do you hang back and have a full wedge and try and get some spin on the ball to hold the green? Now, until 20 years ago, a lot of people didn't have to worry about that decision because as far as they could drive it was going to leave them a full wedge in. But now... They've got that decision to be made. Ten, you mentioned that cavernous bunker. You know, do you have a pop and try and get over it next to the green in one? Uh, even 16 that we've talked about being such a great hole, 220 yards previously was was driver and some for a lot of people. Nowadays, maybe it's a, it's a two hybrid. So, you know, I think technology's actually made Royal Melbourne even better. It's obviously impacted the game horrifically in ways that we couldn't cover in 10 hours of podcasting, but... At Royal Melbourne, I just feel like it's it's made it even more fun for those of us who don't play elite golf. 
Yeah, that's they're really good points. It's definitely more manageable for shorter hitting players, seniors, beginners. Uh, the length that we can drive the golf ball these days allows a far greater percentage of players to interact with those drive hazards as well mm. and, and afford them some good looks on approach. It's, it's yeah, a really good point, Scott. And the, you know, the simple, the binary thing to say is, oh, it's too easy, you know, and, and people talk about the fact that the length isn't, isn't commensurate with what the par is on the, on the scorecard. Um, but, you know, even 20 years ago, Ernie Els shot 60 in the first round of, I think it was a Heineken classic there. And he followed up two days later with 74. You know, it's it's the kind of golf course that I think should be aspirational, that if you pick your marks and hit your shots, you're going to make some putts and shoot a really low number. But when you start missing even incrementally by a couple of yards here and there, you're going to have a bad day. Mackenzie talked about good courses yielding low scores and some sort of error with them in the event that good play didn't realise a good score. Uh, he, he wrote about that in, in Spirit of St Andrews. On this topic, I always think of the words of a guy I played with years ago. I remember uh, some listeners will know Scott and I first crossed paths on a golf forum a long, long time ago. And uh, one of the guys who frequented that online forum with us got into the habit of writing four-word course reviews much as it became a, uh, a thing to see four-word film reviews online. And a guy with whom I played West years ago was thinking about a four-word course review, and he ended up looking at me after a few holes, and he said, looks wide, plays narrow. And he really wanted to thread the needle with lots of tee shots and take a pro line into a, a lot of pins and you don't have to play like that at all. There's ample room to go around and play bogey golf and risk-free golf if you want around Royal Melbourne West. But if you want to walk that tightrope and post a really, really good number, you have to hit some daring shots throughout the round. And if you go for those shots and don't make them, you're going to get unstuck. And as you said, there's there's, there's going to be some high scores that follow as a consequence. Um, there was a Heineken played over the West course or the composite course rather years ago and a, a Welsh golfer, Stuart Manley, aced the fifth hole and then took an 11 on the sixth hole. Uh, so danger lurks around every corner. Adam Scott has run up a quintuple bogey on the second East hole. I think he hit three shots off the tee there one day. It's certainly it, lurking out there for an easy course. You can... You know, you can you can err, and I think one of the things is too, it bites you so unexpectedly when you do when you do miss a shot and end up where you shouldn't be. It just sort of hangs in your head for the rest of the round, you know. And your and your daring drives are a little bit, you know, you're having a little bit of a peak at impact because you know that you know what's waiting for you if you don't quite execute. Yep, absolutely, and that's. I think that's a really intriguing element of the course. There's there's an invitation there, but also that little nagging voice in the back of your mind if you've missed one or two shots and you're hoping that you don't miss more as the day unfolds. Now, technology's also played a part, well, drought and technology probably were hand in glove in a decision, I want to say it was probably 15 years ago or so, to change the grass type at Royal Melbourne. Uh, and it's one thing that 
uh, overseas visitors often kind of remark that Australian golfers are obsessed with grass and different grass types and arguing about them. But I think at Royal Melbourne, it's actually been quite an interesting process of how the club has changed grass types in the fairways and around the greens, Maddie, to try to temper driving distances, but also still allow you to play that link style bounce one up kind of game. Can you talk us through, I guess, how that came to be and, and what that meld of different grasses is at the moment at Royal Melbourne? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of different grasses across the course. The fairway grasses in the lead up to the 2011 President's Cup were changed to this proprietary form of Bermuda called Legend Cooch. Uh, around 2007, 2008, 2009, uh, much of Australia and particularly Melbourne was uh, subject to quite an extreme drought and course conditions really suffered across the sandbelt. Water for irrigation of golf courses was reasonably scarce. Royal Melbourne's bores weren't in great shape for that purpose either. And so the course in getting prepared for the 2011 President's Cup was basically relayed with this legend cooch fairway grass from start to finish, in part because it was deemed to be more drought tolerant, but also, as you said, it was it was a tiny bit more, uh, I, I suppose, sticky, you would say, and it wouldn't allow really, really generous rollout with tee shots. And so the thought was that it could be quite helpful in curtailing burgeoning driver distances we were into the, the second decade of Pro V1s. For playability purposes, there was a fescue collar of grass that uh, was put in between the legend fairway grass and the putting surface. So on approach, if you wanted to land short and then bounce a shot in or run one up to a front pin, uh, you had this predictable firm fescue surface on which you could land an approach. And that fescue also served to separate the putting surface grasses from the fairway grasses. In recent times, the clubs embarked on a project to oversow their fairways with a wintergreen cooch, and that will slowly but surely grow to the point where it becomes the dominant grass across the fairways in probably the next six or seven years. So things will change there a little bit, but I suspect that that fescue collar around all of the putting surfaces will remain. Yeah, I think, I think it's a really wonderful feature of the course too. And, you know, people glorify that linksy kind of Scottish-British way of playing. And it's really necessary, I think, for accessing some of the parts of Greens at RM. And so I think that's a really great a great feature that the club stumbled upon in solving some problems. So, Matty, um, like every course, you know, we, we've, we've talked about the fact that these great courses are always a work in progress and there's there's no course at the top of the game that has parked the course 20 years ago and said this is how it's always going to be and we're not touching it it's it's always a, a case of tinkering and the club's got uh got tom doke as the consulting architect and has had him for you know maybe close to a decade now what's been the extent of of tom and and his associates impact on the course have they changed much they've changed a little bit They've worked on two putting surfaces on the West Course from memory, five and six. The club has quite detailed digital maps of their putting surfaces. And some, some golfers listening will be aware of 
uh, sand splash from greenside hazards that can slowly but surely change those contours. Uh, and that was certainly the case at those two courses. Top dressing can do that as well to some extent. Um, so Tom's done some work like that across the east course, but he's also worked on the fifth and sixth greens on the west course and, and relayed those. Uh, he's expanded the fescue collars around some putting surfaces, probably most notably 11, which is a long hole. And most people approach with a long club. And I can't imagine a lot of people hit that in regulation. In times past, the surrounds there have been a bit unforgiving. And so there's more fescue around that putting surface these days, at Tom's suggestion. He's done some little things just to move course furniture out of direct lines of sight while golfers are on the tee. So a ball washer or a sand receptacle or a drinking fountain has been moved away from, from eye lines, which is a small but significant aesthetic thing. Uh, it's amazing how much difference those things, the things you don't notice actually make. You know, probably on one hand, you'd, you'd count the members who, who could walk onto those tees and say, oh, that, that, sand, that sand collection area has been moved or that fountain's been moved. But, you know, subconsciously, you just think this view looks better now. Yeah. Yeah, just, just less clutter. Uh, it lets the course speak for itself. It's a really neat thing. He's, he's had a similar philosophy at play in changing one or two green to next tee walks as well. So when you exit the sixth green, uh, you walk through the tee tree, a little, a little path was cut between tee trees. So you emerge from that onto the seventh tee. And likewise, when you exit the 11th green, you walk through a little bit of a tee tree shoot onto the 12th tee these days, uh, which just turns things up a notch and, and, is one other little factor, as you say, that that is probably a relentless pursuit for a wonderful experience. Well, Matty, I've loved talking about one of my favourite golf courses with you. Uh, again, I just would would encourage people if you can if you can find the way when you're in Australia to play Royal Melbourne West. You know, I'll stop short of offering a money back guarantee, but I honestly don't think one's necessary. I really do think it's going to be if you get out there and, and get to play the course, it's going to be one of the great the great memories of, of traveling to play golf. Yeah. I, I think when, when golfers look back at the end of their time and they, they think to themselves, I was fortunate enough to visit all of these courses that, that the West course at Royal Melbourne will sit comfortably within that company. Yeah. I mean, it's that top end of golf in the world does, does separate itself from, from a lot of the other stuff that we nonetheless, you know, really enjoy. And, and for me, there's nothing that's, that's noticeably better than Royal Melbourne. And I think as we've discussed, you know, the club uh, and the architects who've, who've contributed through the years have got a lot of things right to make it a really special day. Terrific, mate. Good to chat about it with you. Likewise, really enjoyed discussing one of my favourite courses to play. We've got East in an upcoming episode. I'm not exactly sure what we're going to tackle next. If we look at something else on the sand belt or if we move elsewhere, it's going to be good no matter what it is, though. Looking forward to finding out, Maddie, and chatting about it with you.